Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep. Incidents on B Street by Paul W. Fairman. This is first published and only published in Ed McBain's mystery book number three from 1961. Some good stuff in this issue, including a Donald Westlake article and a story by Lawrence Block and a story by uh, Paul W. Fairman, <laughs> who um, is probably a little less known as an author uh, than he is as an editor. He was the editor of um, a few magazines, including uh, Fantastic, which is a, I'm a big fan of that magazine. Amazing Stories, which I think, you know, it's amazing stories. It's basically the first science fiction magazine, <laughs> although he was not the founding editor of that. Um, and he was also the founding editor of If, which is a pretty terrific um, magazine. Uh, I think it gets a little short shrift because it doesn't have illustrations. Uh, and when I say get a, given a little short shrift, it's given a little short shrift by me. I, I say, oh, it's a new issue of If, which means almost no illustrations inside, if any. On the other hand, their stories were pretty good. Um, so the delight of picking up a new issue of If is more like, oh, well, they do have good stories, but you don't get to see the visual feast of, the, of them until you actually read them with your eyes, which is a little harder to do. Um, this story is illustrated. Um, I'm not sure who the artist is, but we see our main character uh, running from some vicious kids. <laughs> um, and I suggested this to you, and you read it, you agreed to it. And I have some reasons why I think it's interesting, and I assume you have some too. Uh, what do you think about this story, Eric? I, I like it. I find it uh, – I don't want to say too much until uh, till we've heard it again because it's short enough to read. And it's, it's worth reading. Uh, the, the, the modulation of voice is, is subtle here. It is, though, not to give too much away, um, a story that seems to be about a character. Mm-hmm. But I think it becomes about something Great. else, and uh, it's 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 watching it grow and uh, in one's own understanding. I think that's a real gift that Fairman has given to his readers. Agreed, and it's um, incredibly short. It's like three pages of text, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's not even full page on the last page, um, and the first page is just. Just the title and the illustration of the kids going after this old man. Except uh, maybe he's less old than he is disabled. He's got a pension, and I think I know what his pension's from, although the story doesn't reveal it. Um, but I would love for you to read it. Um, I do have some biographical data uh, written by the man himself, if you'd like to hear it. I would. Um, this is from... Uh, fantastic. It's, uh, the summer issue, which I believe is the second issue. Uh, he's the editor therein. Um, uh, amongst the other people who are uh, giving their own little bios in this issue are Raymond Chandler and Walter M. Miller Jr., who are 
pretty famous for their other writings. Uh, Paul W. Fairman, a little less famous, but... Just for people who are listening to us and uh, and may not know, uh, Raymond Chandler is is well known and was prolific. Walter uh, Miller, less prolific, wrote a canticle for Leibowitz, which is a really monumental mm-hmm. classic in science fiction. But he was not, in fact, um, all that prolific. That's why I just mm-hmm. want to remind people of who His he is. His stature is basically relying on. I think there's a sequel to that as well, but everybody just talks about the first novel. Um, there is, and it, he didn't write the sequel. Mm. Actually, it was he wrote part of it, and it was finished by Terry Bissell. Yeah. So uh, it, it's unusual in science fiction to have an author stand as prominently uh, based on one novel. There, are, you know, Aldous Huxley has a book in science fiction that stands prominently. There are other books he wrote. Um, obviously George Orwell has two, uh, SFF books, but Walter M. Miller is a genuine SF guy. Didn't come from the outsider sort of, uh, novel publishing. He's inside SF and he has a very large stature even today, uh, based on that one book. Uh, Raymond Chandler, tons of yeah. He also uh, Miller also does have a a, a very famous mm-hmm. novella called Darth Stellar. Yeah, no, he's got a few um, other little. It's also, also, I mean, it's it's another one that people keep reading even today. But it's just those two pieces. Yes. Um, and and that's pretty impressive. Uh, Paul W. Fairman really never came across my. I've been looking at his stuff for years, and I just never really came across anything that. Uh, popped into my radar until I read this, and then I started noticing, you know, I actually have read stuff by him before. Um, I, he's busy tooting other people's horns, I think, is what it is. Um, and this is what he says in his uh, his little bio on the second, uh, this inside front cover of Fantastic Summer 1952. After 35 years, 20 of them spent at almost every kind of job you can think of, I went into the writing business. Spent most of my life in Chicago, moving to New York in 1950. In the past five years, I've produced children, uh, two children in collaboration with my wife, had 272 stories, sold the entire production with the exception of the children. I will not. <laughs> so you can get a little sense of the wittiness. Um, this is not a comedy story. This is the opposite of a comedy story, but there are things to take away from it that... I think you can see, you know, one way of engaging with reality is you you despair. <laughs> I'm not a fan of this method. It is a perfectly legitimate way of engaging with reality because reality can be difficult. Um, another way is to um, look look deeper and be forgiving. Um, and I think that that's what we have here. Um, but the fact that he even has the impulse to uh, suggest that one could sell one's children is an acknowledgement of that scary possibility. But the fact that he refuses is part of the comedy. We don't need to see the little laughy emoji beside a s- sentence like that to know that this is a man who has thought very deeply about some very hard things and um, has decided to not despair immediately. 
And I think that's what we see in this story. Would you care to read it for us? I would. Incidents on B Street. He turned into B Street around half past three that afternoon. He came from no place in particular, and he had no clear destination at the moment. This shuffling little nondescript who had caused some concern among the mothers of the Flat Point area. An entirely logical concern because his twisted body and ragged filth were translated easily into marks of latent viciousness. So they were naturally worried when they saw him walking their streets and sitting empty-eyed in their parks. Some of them felt a complaint was in order, but none went quite that far because they were all honest taxpayers and neighborhood protection was up to the police. So the little man went his way, unaware of their low regard, the mute hostility simply not penetrating his consciousness. He lived on Garth Place, in a windowless little cubbyhole existing by grace of a tiny pension of some sort, a pittance that gave him means of survival. He had no one, and no one claimed him. Even his name was known only to the bank teller who cashed his monthly check, and then forgot him until the next visit. But it had not always been thus, even though the little man himself could not clearly remember when it had been different. There was a picture of better and more vital days somewhere back in his memory, bright days, but glimpses of them could be dredged up only by dint of great mental effort. And even then, the memory bridge never quite took him back to the times before chaos, always threw him squarely into the blur of that terrible brink-of-death business from which great surgical skill had salvaged his life, but little else. So he'd stopped trying to remember, content now to live from moment to moment in the half-world of damaged mind and broken body, a not unpleasant life, really, because the sun warmed him on good days, and the Garth Place furnace was generous with its heat, when the streets turned icy, content because he was incapable of discontent, and that about summed him up. But on this particular afternoon, a probing recall nudged him sharply. This occurred when he moved up B Street and saw four boys playing in the open basement of a burnt-out warehouse, a dangerous ruin, a second menace that had brought worry to the mothers of Flat Point. Fire had gutted the building some months earlier so fiercely that nothing remained but the basement and a third-floor brick wall running thin and fragile along one side of the excavation. This wall should have been long since demolished, but a jurisdictional argument between two city departments had delayed the work and until the dispute could be settled read, Danger! No Trespassing! Signs had been posted on the three open sides of the basement. But the four boys had ignored the signs with careless courage and an urgent something stirred in the crippled man's mind, something that told him he had once been a person of authority, that protection of the public had been a part of his work, warning the foolhardy still his duty. So acting on this cloudy instinct, he straightened his bent back, frowned down into the pit and called out, Get out of that hole. What are you trying to do? Get killed? Come on, get moving. The boys looked up in idle wonder 
They'd seen the old bum before roaming aimlessly through Flat Point, but they'd ignored him as being not even a worthy target for the hazing, impulsive youth sometimes inflicts on the helpless. But this was different. He'd made sounds like a human being, ridiculous sounds, and they commented, Dig the loudmouth slob, you guys. Beat it, you crazy lush. Is he for real, fellas? Let's find out. And the fourth boy picked up a rock and threw it with enough accuracy to hit the man on the leg. The sharp pain broke the spell, and he whimpered as he came back to reality because pain was an undefeated enemy he remembered well. And with pain came fear, and he turned and ran up the street, although ran was hardly the word. He hopped along ridiculously on one stiff leg and one that gave limply under pressure an amusing spectacle. And it was understandable that four boys, alert for chances of fun on this pleasant afternoon, should climb out of the pit and take off in hot pursuit. They closed in on him at the edge of Flat Point Park, and what happened was no doubt his own fault. He should not have shown such terror. He should not have clambered like a scared, crippled rabbit up a rocky embankment as though danger were at his heels. He shouldn't have tempted the four boys in this manner with so many rocks handy, It was a stupid thing to do, and certainly not the fault of the lads that had responded to a whim of the moment and threw a few of the rocks. They weren't bad boys, not killers by any stretch of imagination. This was amply proved when an accidentally accurate pitch hit the old man squarely in the temple and he dropped as though poleaxed, proved by the fact that the boys stopped throwing instantly and registered fright. They hadn't meant any harm. They'd only been having a little fun. Immediately, the logical argument started as to which one had really thrown the lethal rock. They all denied it and accused each other. Then they debated as to whether any of the rocks had actually hit the old man. Probably not. He'd been drunk in the first place. Anybody could see that. And they hadn't been chasing him either. They had as much right in the park as he did. So how was it their fault if the drunk old coot fell down and hurt himself? They arrived at these conclusions as they retreated slowly, slowly, to make it obvious that they really weren't retreating at all. And then they remembered they hadn't been home from school yet, and that their mothers would probably be worried, so they broke up as a group and each went quietly and obediently home. The old man lay on the rocky hillside for almost an hour, just another drunk nobody paid any attention to until a squad car cruised by containing two policemen whose business it was to pay attention to bums. They went up and looked the old fellow over, found him unconscious, and sent for an ambulance. The response was tolerably prompt. Two interns arrived within 20 minutes, but the old man died halfway to the hospital. What had happened was pretty obvious. An old drunk trying to find a secluded spot to sleep it off had fallen on a rocky hillside in the park and busted his skull. The mark of the rock was plainly visible. No perceptible signs of alcohol, but that didn't mean too much because you could never tell about those old rummies. Even if he hadn't been drunk at the moment, what was he doing there in the first place? Easy for a cripple to slip on that rocky incline. As a matter of form, the two policemen went back to check, and sure enough, there was a sharp rock with blood on it. You didn't even have to look close. After all, what was this? A big murder case or something? So that closed one of the afternoon's incidents on B Street.
The other, the sudden collapse of the brick wall into the basement of the old warehouse generated more interest and excitement. A woman across the alley was sure she'd seen some boys playing in the basement just before the wall went down, but a quick check showed the basement to contain nothing but bricks and mortar, leading them to believe the woman had merely wanted to get into the act to be momentarily important. So all in all, the incidents on B Street that afternoon were not without value to the community. In a matter of minutes, the mothers of Flat Point were relieved of two worries. Twin threats to the well-being of their children had been eliminated. And that made it a better community, a safer place to grow and prosper. Wow. I guess one way of reading it is um, uh, uncritically and just accepting uh, the words sentence by sentence. If you have no memory, <laughs> if you have no ability to connect things from sentence to sentence, if you just live in the moment like our our poor guy, um, at the end you should be happy because two problems in the community are eliminated. Of course, that is not the way we are meant to read it, and unless you've had a severe brain injury, um, you can't read it that way, I don't think. Um, but the way it's so skillfully done that we are the judge, we are the god uh, of this incident, and we are determining what's going on. This guy was a hero. The kids were killers. And the mothers uh, spurred them on. Horrible story. Yep. It's a story of a Horrible. murder of a person who saved the community. Um, I uh, Second reading, I guess it was, I was pretty clear. Uh, I think I read this four times. <laughs> it's pretty short. It's very easy to read. Um, and it's beautiful. It's got some beautiful language in it. Um, but uh, I was like, oh, I think the second time I'm like, I think I know what this guy retired from. Um, that's on the bottom of... Uh, of the first page uh, or the first text uh, starting with a sentence but the four boys had ignored the signs with careless courage and an urgent something stirred in the crippled man's mind and then semicolon something that told him he had once been a person of authority that protection of the public had been part of his work warning the foolhardy still his duty um, the only evidence I have for my idea here is that this fits the facts. It's not backed up by anything else. I think he was like a fireman or something. Um, well, I think he was a policeman. Could have been a policeman, could have been a fireman. His job is to, quote-unquote, protect the community. He's obviously retired on a pension due to those injuries. Uh, we are told the miraculous uh, surgery was done that saved his body, but not his life. Um, saved his body, but not his mind. He's content to live in his disheveled and uh, disabled state. He's called a cripple in here. Um, but the community either is not the one he's from, perhaps because his uh, reduced prospects uh, due to his injuries have not allowed him to live in a, a home with a um, his original home. Um, he's had to move to a smaller place in another community 
so nobody knows who he is. This is um, this is a very uh, American story in a certain sense. Uh, obviously, it would work in Canada as well, but any place where you've got a lot of mobility, people who have the ability to move to another neighborhood, and we're calling it, I'm calling it ability, but that's actually requirement. Um, if you lived in Europe and you, uh, your f- family is from a town, generally until, you know, relatively recently, unless you emigrated from the country completely or just moved to the city, um, you would stay in that place and work that place, especially in a small town. But here we've got a very 20th century story where somebody who should be a figure of respect despite disability, is a finger of ridicule and hate and fear and disrespect. And uh, it's full of pathos. Really, I mean, at the end, you're just torn up inside. I agree fully. I, I, one can't help but have one's heart go out to the, the man who, who I imagine projecting into him i would feel suffering but he feels only contentment the the idea of the people with reduced mental capacity being content is a kind of pathos that we see in things like flowers for algernon um you know and it's it's very affecting it really is but overall it seems to me this can also be viewed as a a philosophique a philosophical Mm -hmm. story to me, it seems to be an indictment of the modern approach to community. Yep. It, it, it addresses the relationship between individual responsibility, and sometimes the word fault mm-hmm. comes up instead, like the boys, it wasn't their right. fault, um, the, the, the individual responsibility and civic responsibility so the policemen it's their job to investigate so they go up and look at this this body on the the slag heap um but nobody else does because it's not their job um what we get here is a constant rationalization by those who want to evade responsibility even the police who recognize they have responsibility but not so much as to investigate what is obviously a foul play because after all it's not a big murder case since the man there is a drunk he must be even though there's no evidence of alcohol in his breath it's all a question about evading responsibility but in every instance the evasion of responsibility is rationalized by asserting that it belongs to someone else. It either belongs to the marginalized, it's the man's fault that he, he was foolish enough to go into the park and, go, you know, and speak out, or it's society's responsibility. It's never an ordinary person's responsibility. These are the incidents on B Street, mm-hmm. not the A Street, but the B Street. And they are merely incidents because, in fact, they reflect, I think this is what the story is suggesting, the totality of the way we live nowadays. The place that they live for the, 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 the main character, he lives in a windowless enclosure 
which is on Garth Place. And the word Garth is an, is an obsolete English word for a small piece of enclosed ground. His life is entirely circumscribed because he maybe he had something before, but all he's left with is the pension, which itself is an abjuration of the responsibility of whatever civic organization employed him as a fireman or policeman to reduce his life to that, you know, is another, you know, rejection of responsibility. But the place he is now, the area of whatever the city is, is called Flat Point. It's, it's, a, it's an oxymoron, right? So, I mean, a flat point is not to make too fine a point of it, is in fact a very dull yeah. point. They use the point of who is responsible for what to evade what's going on. Now, if you really want to know, uh, if you think about it, and Fairman has this all in the story, the mothers mm-hmm. should have made sure that that brick wall was torn down long ago. Two city agencies mm-hmm. should have made sure that it was torn down long ago. But the mothers didn't do it because it's the police responsibility. Right. And the two agencies didn't do it because it's someone else's responsibility. This is a story punctuated by a pathetic death of an admirable person whose deepest, deepest recollection of his own place in the world is to protect others. And his needless death comes about as something joyful to a community that thrives and prospers by displacing responsibility. Yep. A powerful indictment, this story. Yeah, you know, it's it's so carefully constructed. I don't know if he did it's just this people these writers seem to be capable of doing things intuitively i i when i'm doing my own writing i'm like uh i can see when i did something good and then i try and reinforce it but i feel like some people are just really good at this and just the, how short this story is uh, notice like nobody gets a name right it's not important right um but even there's a lot of characters the two interns there's the cops there's the four kids there's the mothers um, and of course, there's this evil, evil narrator who's laying on these gaslighting uh, rationalizations at every turn, every possible turn, making the case for us to be defiant of what this story is doing. And then I notice right at the end, there's a woman. A woman across the alley was sure she'd seen some boys playing in the basement just before the wall went down. Hey, she was correct. But a quick check showed that the basement contained nothing but bricks and mortar, leading them, who is them, to believe that the woman had merely wanted to, quote-unquote, get into the act to be momentarily important. She says, I'm really worried about the kids I saw playing in the basement there. And they're like, ah, yeah, whatever, lady, we'll check it out. They check it out. Yeah, she just wants to be important. And the thing is, is this is a possibility. There are people who are just busybodies and want to feel like they're the center of attention. But there's also a lot of people who aren't busybodies and 
only need uh, want to speak up when they think something's very important. And so how to how to know when somebody's just a bum sleeping it off versus a person in dire need of medical attention? Um, well, you have to know everybody in your community. And we don't know anybody here. Even the bank teller doesn't know the guy's name in between pension pension check deposits. He only knows it on that day. And it is it is the kind of horror that can only really come when you've got a, a bunch of anonymous strangers who don't know each other, don't care about each other, and only think of other people as threats or ways to uh, get one over on somebody else, get push your position up in the community. So the fact that the the ambulance comes in a tolerable amount of time, okay. Um, but w- w- it's like the civic urgency, when you hear the ambulance siren, you're supposed to pull over to the side of the road. And you don't know for sure that the ambulance siren isn't just going for lunch, that they're just really hungry and they want to show off their power. But you have to assume that they're being responsible with their their special powers. And it's kind of like being charitable towards other people and actually wanting to know their names. And it's, it's essentially um, the human problem in modern society. If you can't know your neighbors, you can't trust your neighbors, you might only think cynical things about them when some of them might be trying to help you and might be really good people. In fact, aren't a lot of them really good people? What about these kids? Right? What made them so mean? Well, well, of course, they're growing up in Flat Point. Mm -hmm. And they're growing up with those mothers. Um, I, I, I don't think that the narrator is an evil narrator. I think the narrator is is miming evilness so that we will be able to see through his or her, their mask. Um, Those kids, uh, what are they? I think that like the Martians rising out of the pit in uh, War of the Worlds, this very short, very well-written story um, tells us something when the four boys come out of the pit in order to chase the, uh, the this man who made the mistake of appearing to be human. Mm. They are devils. And I don't mean that they are actual devils. And I don't mean in a sense that they're metaphorical devils. I mean that they reflect the basest instincts of human beings. And they have fooled their mothers Easily enough, because the mothers don't want to take responsibility for knowing where the children were, and so on. This is a self-perpetuating defeat of the simple premise that collective responsibility belongs, begins with individual responsibility. There is no such thing as collective responsibility without individual responsibility. And that, I think, is a philosophical proposition that Fairman is implicitly laying before us and asking us to think about 
while we hold this pathetic image in our minds. Uh, the, there's so many lines, um, the hazing impulse, right? Uh, oh, I've never used the, that phrase myself, but uh, it's, it's a thing. Um, uh, so many, so many. And it reminds us that fraternities do it by, oh, yeah. by rule. Oh, yeah. Um, when, when the, our hero victim, um, gets his cloudy instincts straightened, straightens his back, and then he puts on a frown on his face, the frown of authority, and you should listen to me. What does he say? He says, get out of that hole. What are you trying to do? Get killed? Come on, get out, get moving. And we get a line like, they weren't bad boys, not killers by any stretch of the imagination. They literally killed him. Exactly. Exactly. And that's the kind of thing that Fairman wants us to recognize that there is always more to say. Thanks very much for listening. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash SFF audio.